right, good morning. Good morning. It's a good crowd here. I think, I, I mean, did you all think it was fellowship meal this today? That, that's what I was thinking. But uh, if not, it, it's not. It's next week. And everybody here, come back next week because uh, this church knows how to cook. So I encourage you to come back. We appreciate our visitors uh, today and appreciate all those who participated in worship. Uh, certainly, Ron, appreciate you doing announcements. I know that's not an act of worship, but it's always stressful to me to do announcements. I'd rather preach ten times than do announcements one time. So appreciate you doing that. Carl, appreciate the song service. And Brother Joe, appreciate uh, that wonderful prayer. Uh, today I'm going to talk to you about money of the Bible. And this is not a lesson on giving. I'm, I'm just <laughs> precursoring that uh, to begin with. But it's probably a lesson that you haven't heard before uh, because there's not a lot of, of preaching done on the money of the Bible, but I, I believe that there is a lot of really interesting uh, information on coins of the Bible, on the money of the Bible, in the Bible, about money, and we're going to explore some of that. When I was a kid, I loved show and tell. I loved it so much. I loved bringing stuff uh, from my house uh, to, to school and showing off all the things that you got to do. Now come along, what is it, like third or fourth grade? I found out they don't do show and tell anymore. And I didn't want to even want to go to school. But there was at least recess, right? I was in for a shock when I got to seventh grade, right? There's no more recess either. So the school was just no more fun after that. But I do love show and tell. And one of the things that I've done uh, in my life is I used to be uh, a coin dealer. And that I, I dealt in ancient coins. Uh, they call it numismatics. Uh, and I would I would purchase ancient coins and I would sell them. I don't do that any, I still purchase ancient coins, but I don't sell them uh, much anymore. Uh, and the first question that I usually get about these items, and I've brought some today, is are they really 2,000-year-old coins? And the answer is yes. Uh, some of them, like this one here, is even older than that. It's around 2,400 years old. Uh, people ask, well, how is that possible? I've got a penny that's 80 years old, and it's it's almost worn smooth. Uh, well, they find them in the ground, sometimes in large hordes like this, where somebody has buried this as sort of a sacrifice before a battle, probably. Uh, and you can see how many coins were found in this one. Uh, and sometimes they're found throughout what was known as the Roman Empire. Uh, Rome was a vast empire stretched out through most of Europe, up into England even, uh, down into Africa, and over into the Middle East. And so they, they find these coins uh, from all over, particularly from the Roman Empire, but even earlier from the Persians uh, and from the Greeks. So why should we spend time looking at ancient coins? Uh, what's the, the point of doing that? And Sir William Ramsey, who was actually converted to Christianity by studying the archaeology of the Bible and going to the Bible lands and digging, and he proved to himself that what the Bible teaches is accurate, that the Bible's, the history contained in the Bible is so accurate that he converted to Christianity. And he said that younger students, uh, we need to teach them the method of applying archaeological, topographical, and numismatic evidence to the investigation of early Christian history. Uh, what he's saying there is, look, we need to look at the archaeology because the archaeology backs up the Bible every time. 
the Bible is the most accurate historical resource that we have from that time period. And in fact, if you look at other historical resources from them, they are filled with errors, but not the Bible. The Bible is perfect. Uh, topography, that's looking at, at the map, right? Looking at the lay of the land, sometimes for battles, things like that. Their position uh, in that part of the world and why they did certain things the way they did. And then he says numismatics. We look at coins. Uh, and, and the reason you look at coins is because coins are a statement from the issuing authority about what they want you to know about them. Uh, we do this today. If you look at a U.S. coin, there's a whole bunch of information on that coin that people are going to look at hundreds of years from now about the history of the United States, right? Well, the same is true for ancient coins. They have all of these different symbols. I'm not going to go way into depth on this today, on this particular coin, but you can see how much information is contained and how much we can tell from that culture just looking at their coins. Also, while some of it is propaganda sometimes, uh, we can see what their their goal was, what they were trying to communicate to their people. And oftentimes, the information that's on our money is highly accurate, right? You look at the buildings uh, that are contained on the dollars that we produce, and you can hold them up, and they are exact representations of the actual buildings. They're highly accurate. Uh, that's true today, and it was true in the ancient world. Uh, here are a few buildings that are on different coins. You have the Temple of Augustus. You have the Colosseum, where you can even see individual spectators in the Colosseum. You have the Temple of Janus, which I have a coin up here. I have that very coin, which showing the Temple of Janus. Uh, and we have a, a very rare coin here that Israel produced during a time of revolt against Rome where they depicted the temple. Uh, and they even depicted the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. So we can see what these buildings, some of them that still exist, like the Colosseum, and some that don't, like the temple in Jerusalem. And that's what I want to examine this morning, I want to take a look at some of the details. There was a guy named Mies van der Rohe, and he said that God is in the details. He was an architect, and what he was referring to is the idea of, look, you know, anybody can build a building, but if you want to build a really majestic building, it has to be, you have to look at the details. Everything about that has to be perfect. In order, he, he believed to achieve some sort of divinity, right? So he's, he's saying, if you want to live forever, uh, God is in the details. And I think that God is in the details and that sometimes, also, the devil is in the details. And I'm going to show you what I mean by that throughout the course of this lesson. But first, I want to take a look at the U.S. dollar, just so we can take a look at one of these details. So we can take something from modern times, and then we're going to look at some things from the ancient world and pull out some details from that. But on the U.S. dollar, if you've ever noticed, and if you have a dollar, you feel free to take one out and look, there's a web that's back behind it. In fact, you can see that web here. It's supporting it. And the designer of the dollar 
He said, look, there's a web, and it's a designed web, and design demands a designer. It demands a creator. So if you have a web on the dollar, something had to have made that web, right? And so he put on the dollar, many people say, this little spider up there in the corner. And you can see it, and on your dollar, it looks a little bit different than the rest of the web, It looks like a little spider perched there. The idea that there's these little details that are contained on the dollar uh, that, that convey that idea of design demands a creator. And when we look at the accuracy of the Bible in terms of coins and coinage and trade, what we'll find is perfect accuracy throughout the entire Bible. They never make a mistake to do with anything to do with monetary or coins or trade. The Bible is always accurate. You say, well, so what? You know, that's not a big deal. It's kind of a big deal because there are other books that claim to be inspired. And these books often talk about archaeology. They talk about places and they talk about money and trade. And oftentimes they may get some details correct, but then when they get down to the really tiny details of things, they will get something wrong in talking about coins or talking about trade. What do you mean? Well, there's this book, and you may have heard of it. It's called The Book of Mormon. He, Joseph Smith, he also wrote other uh, books as well. But The Book of Mormon, he says, is inspired that an angel came to him and gave him these golden tablets and told him the translation and that he was able to put them in a hat and look into the hat. He sat on the stairs where he couldn't be seen and and that the translation in English would just come to him uh, right there and he would dictate that to a secretary. Uh, It's depicted here and that's not a picture that I made up. It's a picture I took from their their website. Uh, they, They are proud of this story. Uh, Now, I know on the surface, that's just not how God acts. It's not how God does things. And if you look at the Book of Mormon, there are are numerous uh, odd, odd things. And we're not going to examine all of those, but we're going to take a look and we're going to zero in on how they deal with money. Part of the idea in the Book of Mormon is there's this lost tribe that's coming uh, from Israel, and they're coming over to Native America. They're going to spread uh, the gospel eventually to America, uh, to the Native Americans. And in Alma 11 and verse 4, it says, Now these are the names of the different pieces of the gold and the silver according to their value. And then it says what all of them are. It says there's, there's a, of gold, Sinai, Sion, Shum, and Lina, silver, Sinam, Amnar, Ezram, and Anti. And in lower numbers, there were shiblons worth half a senum, shiblons worth half a shiblon, and leahs worth half a shiblon. I, I hope you got all that. So, write it down. Uh, there's just one, one problem with that, is that none of those pieces of money, none of those pieces of gold and silver, none of that ever existed in, in Native America. That is not something that Native Americans did. They did not trade for gold and silver, and they did not break them into pre-weighed pieces. They did not use coins. Coins had not been invented in North America. That is not something that they used. They used what's called wampum, 
And uh, these were glass beads that were strung together and were used as a method of exchange. And, and in fact, it was a, a not a very great method because some tribes turned out to be really good at making these beads, and so that caused inflation, just like we have today. Uh, but they did not use gold and silver pieces of money. They did not do that. So I would put forth to you that the devil is in the details there in the Book of Mormon. If the Book of Mormon is going to say, look, Native Americans, these Jews came over, uh, they were Christian Jews, and they were, they're going to uh, use these types of money, and that, was, that money never existed. So that's, that's sort of a big problem with saying that something's inspired. Uh, there are other problems with it as well, but that's clearly one. What about the Quran? Uh, or the Quran, uh, however you'd like to pronounce it. Well, in Surah 12 and verse 20, it tells the story, uh, and in fact, it, throughout the Quran, there are many stories that are the same stories that are found in the Old Testament with slightly different details. And in this particular story, it's the story of Joseph's brothers selling him to uh, Midianite uh, slave traders and making him a slave. And it says they sold him, Joseph, for a miserable price for a few dirhams counted out in such low estimation did they hold him. All right, well, I'll give them this. At least dirham is a real piece of money. This is one of them. Uh, it is derived from the Greek, Greek dram, uh, and it is a Greek coin. They were invented about 640 B.C. Uh, over time. That concept, the idea of making certain pieces of silver or gold a certain weight and stamping it with information from your country, that caught on. The Persians, eventually in Israel and all around there and into the Middle East, and eventually the dirham was created. So it was a real coin. The problem is that Joseph was traded uh, as a slave about 1900 B.C., uh, now, I'm not great at math. We established that in the Bible class today, right? But 1900 B.C. is a good deal before the invention of coins in 640 B.C. There, there were no dirhams to trade for anything because dirhams did not exist at that time period. So once again, the devil is in the details when you look at the Quran. So that's true of the Quran, it's true of the Book of Mormon, that it gets these details incorrect. So what about the Bible? Well, you take a look at that same story in the Bible about the trading of Joseph as a slave, and it says that they lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. Not 20 dirhams, not 20 coins, because coins had not been invented, but 20 pieces of silver. That's how people did trade during that time period, pre-weighed bits of silver. So God is in the details when we look at the Bible. And that's true throughout the Bible. Every other book needs to bow to the Bible, because the Bible is accurate in all that it portrays. It's amazing how it never gets any of these details incorrect. And you look through the history of the Bible, throughout almost all of Bible history in the Old Testament, 
coins had not been invented. So if the Bible was talking about coins at a time period when coins had not been invented yet, we would question it, right? But that's not what we find. We find over and over again when it talks about wealth or it talks about money or it talks about trade, we see it from the very beginning. It says Abram was very rich in cattle and in silver and gold. It doesn't talk about coins, right? And we see where he lived throughout his life and all the places he traveled. None of those people at the time of Abraham had coins. Job is another one. Job is one of the patriarchs. He lived in that time period of the Old Testament. And it talks about his substance was also 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and a very great household. So this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. He was extremely wealthy, but it doesn't talk about him having any coins, right? Because they weren't invented yet. And throughout Job, throughout Leviticus, in Proverbs, throughout the prophets, what we're going to find is they often talk about weight when they're talking about dealing with gold. It's in uh, Job 28.15, exchange of goods for certain weights of gold and silver. Now we're talking about something like this, and I brought my scale up here, and you can feel free uh, to play with that afterward. But that's what they would do, is they would put some gold on one side and a, a known weight on the other side and balance it out, and that's how they would conduct trade. And oftentimes what we find is them talking about cheating people. So you have, in Leviticus, you have the law, and God is making laws that says, you shall do no unrighteousness in judgment and meet your weight and measure just balances and just weights. Well, what's it talking about? Well, what we found through archaeology is you find these weights, and sometimes they don't weigh exactly right. Sometimes they're a little light. And sometimes they're a little heavy. They're almost never the right weight. That's odd, isn't it? Well, it seems like there are a lot of merchants during that time period who would cheat people. They use one set of weights when they're buying stuff, and they use another set of weights when they sell it so they can pad their profits a good bit. And we see over and over again, a false balance is abomination to the Lord. A just weight is his delight. God telling them, don't do this. Don't cheat people when you weigh out gold and silver. It doesn't say don't don't keep don't make incorrect change. It talks about the fact that there's a just weight and a just balance is what the Lord wants. Treat people fairly. Don't cheat them when you sell them things, right? And we see that throughout the Bible. I think I skipped my. There we go. Uh, those are some of the weights uh, and. There were, there were predetermined weights, and they're marked on there how much they weigh. And then when you weigh them out, they don't always weigh exactly right. Uh, Amos 8 continues to talk about it. Hosea 12 talks about it. Malachi 6 talks about it. In other words, we see this over and over again in the Old Testament, talking about exchange of weight. There are plenty of examples of this throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament. And we see this with the talent, which is the largest weight standard of the time. It weighs about 75 pounds. And I'll probably do a second coin lesson on the coins of the New Testament, and we'll talk about the parable of the talents. 
But this was the largest weight standard, and it was used by countries when they're trading a talent, a 75-pound weight of gold and silver. Sometimes they were carried in ingots or in jewelry that had been pre-weighed about how much this bracelet weighed. And we find that, we find that talked about in Genesis. And sometimes they were on golden rings. We, we see that talked about in Genesis when Pharaoh gives his ring to Joseph. And we see also in Egyptian hieroglyphics, they, they have this idea of the scales and weighing gold and silver. Or in this case, it looks like meat. If you want to buy a cow's head, I don't know. But uh, And then over here, when the children of Israel are worried about Moses being up on the mountain, and they say, let's make us a new God, they, they take off all their gold and silver jewelry to do that. And it's not up until the very end of the Old Testament, when coins have been invented, that you start seeing them show up in the text. Uh, because the text of the Bible is accurate. Coins were invented by the Greeks, those are the oldest coins from around 600. They're so old that, in fact, they did not know how to make an image on both sides of the coin yet without messing them both up. So they just have a punch mark that would hold it on one side and the image on the other. And the Persians copied this. This is King Darius. And you see him mentioned in Ezra 8, 26 through 27. And I have uh, the silver version of this coin as well up here. So it's about 2,400 years old, and what you'll notice is that there's an image of, of King Darius on one side, and there's a punch mark on the other side, because they didn't know yet how to do that. We see throughout the Old and the New Testament that the Bible always gets it right. We get into what's called the intertestamental period, and this is when coins really just exploded. We don't have time to go into all of that. But as you, you come into the New Testament, what you'll find is now that everybody has coins because they were invented right there at the end of the Old Testament and they flourished and spread throughout the intertestamental period. And Jewish coins were different than everybody else's coins because Jews did not put graven images on their coins. So instead of having birds or animals or people or gods or goddesses, they would put an anchor right here. Whoops. An anchor or a wheel to represent commerce. So they would put text in Hebrew, but they would not put a graven image of a person on there. And then when they were able to make coins during their revolt against Rome, they put the, the temple on there. And we don't have time to go into all the intertestamental stuff, but Alexander the Great comes. He conquers that whole area for the Greeks. That's part of what spread Greek coinage throughout the area. You open up onto the New Testament, and, and what you have is everybody has coins, and everybody around them puts gods, goddesses. They have a pantheon of gods. Uh, and everybody around the Jews was always pushing this concept of having multiple gods. And we see that surrounding them. Every, every side, they are surrounded by people who have all these multiple gods and put them on their coins. Uh, they even have a, a statue to the unknown god, right? Paul talks about that in Acts 12. And then 
all of these different gods and goddesses appear on the coinage. It's kind of like uh, today. It makes me think of today where it's kind of choose your own religion, right? We don't have to do what the Bible says. We can choose our own religion. And in fact, there's there's multiple even statues of, of Jesus that you can choose from if that's what you're into. Even a Lego Jesus, an underwater version of Jesus. Uh, this one got struck by lightning, um, which might tell you something. But, uh, but it burned down. But it's, it's kind of this idea of choose your own religion. But the Jews held true to the one God for the most part. And on their coins, that's what's depicted because they wanted to follow those two commandments to set no other gods before God and to not depict any animals or people or gods or goddesses on the coins. Well, that's going to conclude what I'm going to talk about uh, on coins today. But I was thinking about this by way of invitation in the sense that we want to remain true to God. And I was thinking, you know, sometimes people think that they are not worthy of God's love, um, that they're, they're not able to receive God's grace because they've, they've not been good enough, uh, things along that nature. And I think that, that causes people sometimes to do things that they, they shouldn't do, uh, to, to continue in sin, and those sorts of things. And it's true that we can never earn our way to heaven in the sense that we can never be good enough to be worthy to go to heaven. But we are worthy of God's love in, in this sense. You know, a, a newborn baby, right? Has that baby done anything to earn your love? I mean, they haven't. They haven't done anything. They can't feed themselves or change themselves or anything. But you love them, right? They haven't done anything to earn your love except exist because you, you created that child. You love your children. And, and God is the same way. He loves us because we are, are his children. It's not that we've earned his love. He loves us even when we are in sin. But he wants us to be in a right state with him. He wants us to be righteous with him so we can have a deeper relationship with him. That's what he wants. Just like we want that with our children. It's the same thing. And so I was thinking about that this morning. I was actually thinking about it last night when I couldn't, couldn't sleep. And I think today you need to consider that if, if there's anything holding you back from obeying the gospel or from getting in a right relationship with God, you need to make that right because God wants that for you. It's not that you've earned it or you deserve it in the sense that you've been good enough. None of us has. We all are in need of God's grace. But don't let anything like that hold you back from obtaining it through obeying the gospel from doing what God said we need to do in order to be saved, in order to be with him in heaven one day, to have that hope. So if that's the case for you this morning, if you've fallen away or if you've never obeyed the gospel, please make that right. Don't go away from here lost. Come forward and make it known as we, we stand and as we sing.